Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast, a podcast for people in the jewelry industry to learn more and also jewelry lovers who just want to expand their knowledge. Here we talk about everything that has to do with antique and vintage jewelry. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani, the editor-in-chief of Rappaport. I edit a monthly magazine for the trade that covers everything from mining to retail. I'm also editing an online publication called Jewelry Connoisseur, like this podcast, and I curate an Instagram account, Rappaport Jewelry Pro. On all our platforms, we try to educate our audience on diamonds, colored gemstones, antique jewelry, and also contemporary design. I personally love to learn about jewelry, and I love to have exciting guests. I hope by the end of this new episode, you also feel you discover something new about the fascinating world of jewels. Today, my guest is Emma de Sibel. Emma is based in London, and she's a vintage dealer. Her store is called Barrow Rocks. She established it in 2017, specializing in vintage jewels from the 1960s up to 2000. She's very much into sustainability, recycling jewels, upgrading jewels. And today she's going to tell us about this period. Who are the big names to collect? Many more names than Andrew Grima that we all know. And she'll also tell us how to make the best from this period. Hi, Emma. How are you? Very well, Sonia. How are you? I'm great. Just finished the Jubilee celebrations in London. So how was it? Oh, I have to say they were utterly magnificent. I mean, something that I laughed. I actually cried because the last day was the pageant and you had all these magnificent spectacles, you know, all these people coming in and doing these fabulous kind of floats down the mall. And then at the very end, the Queen comes out and she is the monarch of all magnificent monarchs. She really is a phenomenal, phenomenal woman. And then I cried. <laughs> I was so overcome by emotion. But um, no, it was fabulous. I have to say, really, really fabulous. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm happy we're recording this podcast after such a historical event. Why I wanted to have you on the podcast is not just because you're based in London, but I know you have a real passion for British modernist jewellery. So what is it? How do you define it? Well, Sonia, it's actually, it's a really difficult term really to define, I'd say, because the key areas, I'd say, are diversity, versatility and ingenuity, but above all, experimentation. And this was seen not just in the world of jewellery, but you have to understand the concept of the social changes. We just got through the World War II in the 1950s. And then we saw what was called the baby boomers. And we had a bit of a boom, I suppose. And then in the 1960s, everyone, you know, the children and the adolescents suddenly didn't want to wear twin set and pearls or well-fitted dresses and little suits and whatnot. And so they decided to experiment. It's a rebellion, I guess. I remember my father telling me that he walked down the King's Road with his station called Balzac, and he had a parrot on his shoulder. But that was nothing because people used to walk down with leopards and animals, exotic animals they'd get from Harrods. But going back to the jewellery, I think it was a time where they really, really wanted to experiment. And in the 1960s, gold was actually very, very cheap to come by, which meant that the jewellers had an opportunity to create incredible pieces because the prices weren't so expensive. And I'll touch on this a bit later on. Because you're a vintage jewellery dealer in London, and I know you love this area. You have pieces from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, a bit further as well. But how did you come to start collecting these pieces? 
I love gold. It's a fantastic, I mean, the bigger, the bolder, the better. And I'm also very short. So anything that is enormous and is fun. But I started collecting because I spent a lot of time in the banking world. So I spent 15, 16 years at JP Morgan. As a woman there, there were very few women and you'd wear a skirt suit. And you very seldomly wore a trouser suit, but in, you wore a skirt suit. And then I'd wear enormous jewellery to accentuate whatever I was wearing. And it was just a different kind of way of expressing yourself. And then I remember, rather than kind of paying my rent, I ridiculously went to a jewellery fair and started seeing these pieces. And I got carried away and I suddenly forgot that I had to pay my rent. And I was like, oh, my word, this is a disaster. I've started buying all this jewellery. <laughs> and so this is what happened. And I just... I loved the pieces so much. And the, going back to the gold, I love the way that it moves. You know, it's such a malleable thing, but to be able to actually make it look in these pieces, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal. And can you tell us a bit more about your practice? I know you upcycle some pieces, you source different pieces. It's a very long process. So the first thing I do is I go and have every single piece polished. And I think the reason I do that is because I like clean looking jewellery. It's got to look fabulous. I mean, if you're buying antique jewellery, you certainly don't want to clean it. You want it to look from 100 years ago or more, 200 years ago. But these are 50, 60 years old, and they're so modern and so contemporary. And also gold needs to be bright and sassy and fabulous. So first of all, I take it to my jewellery polisher, who is the most magnificent man. He is called Leon, and the chap who he took over from was, is called Sid. Now, they do you know about, obviously you would know about the jewellery polishing, but the reason in the jewellery business that the, the polishers are so important is that they finish off all the pieces for you, and they'll polish it up to new things. They take, for each piece, it takes about 45 minutes to polish and, you know, clean up and everything but where they make their money and I always find this so fascinating is in the gold dust so when they're polishing the pieces obviously your piece you'll lose a few bits of magical gold dust which doesn't really change the weight of a piece but it just goes into their vacuum which is a bit like a Henry the Hoover I suppose and at the end of the month or every five months they take these enormous plastic bags full of what we would deem rubbish and they take it down to the bullion guys and then they melt everything they'll take out the silver section, they'll take out the copper, which is the alloy normally, and then they'll take out the gold. So he will make his money from the gold dust, not from what I pay him to polish each piece, which I love. And that's why the term recycled gold is so hilarious, because nothing is wasted in the jewellery world. And this is what I love. It is one of the most sustainable art forms out there, because nothing is wasted. And I think that's wonderful. And then what I do is with the pieces, if it is a signature piece, say like a Cartier or a Bulgari or something like that, I will never touch it because you will destroy its value. However, if it is an unsigned, much less famous piece or anything, I will have a play sometimes if the piece warrants it. If the stone is cracked, or it's a bright red garnet. So these amazing red garnets, these pigeon blood red garnets, they sometimes don't sell because it's deemed to be too old fashioned, too something that your grandmother would wear. And so what I do is I go for popping colours. And so you have this kind of clash of colour and it just brings the old mount into something very cool and very modern. And again, going back to the 60s and 70s, those mounts were already cool. They were already different and something that no one had seen before. That's what I love. Going back to the jewellery cleansing, the reason I went into the cleansing was when I was at JP Morgan, and again, going back to the fact that I was one of the only females there, the chaps on my trading floor and desk would always ask me what they should buy for their wives and their girlfriends and mistresses or whatever, whoever it was for. And then I'd say, well, why don't you go to Gray's Market? This is where you find some fabulous vintage pieces and antique pieces. And they looked at me in absolute horror. They said, no, 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 we want to have a piece that will resonate with them 
And so they'd go downstairs. We were in Canary Wharf, which I called it the Gilded Cage. And downstairs in Canary Wharf was Tiffany's. It was marvellous. <laughs> so they would go to Tiffany's and Tiffany's was doing a cracking kind of business. And they'd go down there and they'd buy the Elsa Peretti heart for their loved ones or whatever it was. But they'd all come back with a uniform piece. And then I started thinking, OK, so this is madness. Why are you just getting your, you know, the females or males in your life exactly the same item? Why do you want a homogenized product? They said, oh, well, because sometimes the jewellery is dirty, don't know about the energies, you know, don't know who wore that piece or what was going through them. Maybe they'd been divorced or whatever it is. And I thought, okay, well, this is bonkers, absolutely bonkers, because that means that's taking away a whole kind of raft of people from being able to wear them. So I get these tuning forks and I cleanse every single piece. So metals have energies, and this is actually quite scientific. And sometimes when a piece, you know, also it depends on how high you hit your tuning forks, but sometimes the sound is so strong that even the dog runs out of the room. So you just never know. So I'm just bringing it all back to centre. I feel like I'm wearing some good vibed jewellery and I know that it's all going to be good. And I love the fact that you keep the settings, the original settings, and you make it pop with different coloured gemstones. And it's all really lovely. And in the spirit of this period as well, there was fun and party loving. And for our listeners, Emma is still happily married. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am. And you know, we just had our wedding anniversary and it was 15 years thing. Buying secondhand vintage already on divorcee ring is okay. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You just have to sound cleanse them. Well, the pieces, you have this magnificent pendant, the big rings, you know, at Baroque Rock, which is your studio, you go for a lot of cocktail rings and fun objects and really a lot of little meaningful pendants and charms. What are the stories from the 60s, 70s that are really if someone would like to collect? Well, going back to the 60s, when the jewellers had the ability to buy gold, they were far more experimentational, I'd say. There's obviously what I call the molten gold effect, which is my absolute favourite. And this is like enormous globules of gold and then these kind of freeform stones. But there's an incredible designer called David Deacon. And they have a family business, which has been with them for 100 years, actually, uh, called Deacon and Francis. And I'm actually going to just very quickly paraphrase one of my favourite quotes when I got to interview his son. And that really explains how they got the molten gold. What he created was something called the crystal collection. And it was successful because everything was handmade. The gold worth was sympathetic with the mineral specimen. We poured molten gold, so super hot gold, from a height into buckets of crushed ice into sawdust sand. And what he doesn't say here is actually they had to climb a really big ladder and on the ground was this bucket. It's hilarious. Filled up with sawdust and ice and then they climbed up this ladder with boiling hot liquid gold and then they poured them, poured this gold into the bucket and it would splash and kind of create extraordinary forms. We created mouldy spaghetti golden rods which were built up like spillikins and cornflakes and exploding beads all to shock the metal. And many of the pieces were so three-dimensionally formed that the mounts were created around the unique uncut stones rather than simply setting a piece of jewellery which was very exciting. So I suppose pre the 1960s, the forms, you know, everything was very traditional. And then they were having this mad time in the studios where (laughs) they were having fun and trying to create things. And again, they rather like Andrew Greamer, they decided to use citrines, which hadn't been quite so readily used, or topazes or tourmalines, and especially the watermelon tourmaline. And then the gold would kind of form around it when it was still in that kind of molten gold. And then they'd put it onto a necklace and you'd just be walking around with this 
sensational, enormous, very heavy piece. What I absolutely love is something called the textured or barked effect. What's amazing about that is that every single bit of barking is done by hand. If you take a ring, for example, to think how much time that would have taken to scratch or kind of create this textured or barked effect. I mean, it was amazing just to create the different looks. So you had, the, I suppose, the kind of the organic, molten, barked effect pieces. But then you also had the novelty pieces. And George Jensen was really so brilliant at it. And he created a miniature British passport with a coat of arms on it. You open it up and it's got proper pages as it would happen in your passport. And it is something that is so beautifully, beautifully intricate and put together. What else? There were spinners with I Love You. So the novelty things were so clever. And I found this 1960s house. So it may, looks like a house. On the back of the house, it says the old curiosity shop. And I thought, brilliant. And then you open up the house and there is a little figure form of Charles Dickens. It was so clever because Charles Dickens wrote the old curiosity shop. And I thought, what a fabulous idea. So a lot of humour around these pieces. I'm trying to think. I've just bought, and I'm so excited, actually. It's a 1960s piece, and it's a tiny charm of London Bridge. And it's articulated. So again, articulated pieces were very much de rigueur of this period, where the bridge actually opens up. So you play with it, and it opens up. I mean, it's so clever. Just absolutely brilliant and I've got this wonderful round cat and you pull underneath its um, chin is a lever and you pull it and its tongue comes out and its eyes go back quite scary but it's really fun and that's what else I do is a lot of the time the enameling has come off these pieces because they're so old and so well loved and so what I do is I go and get them polished and then I take them to the enameler there's very few enamelers left in the UK and it makes me very sad it needs to be brought back in and they put back the enameling which is an incredible craft so zodiac pendants numismatic jewelry was very popular this coin jewelry so you'd find like fabulous nabataean or roman coins and then you'd put it in and bulgari loved that initial jewelry which everyone's wearing now again so everything that was then is becoming quite fun to be used now and you can see the trends just repeating just fashion always repeats itself but it seems to be even more come the 70s Gold had taken a massive, massive hit, i.e. it became so expensive. By the end of the 1970s, it had risen by 2,000%, which is an enormous, enormous percentage, right? So the jewellers suddenly couldn't really make as many pieces because it was too expensive. And I'd say the 1960s was a decade where the experimentation happened and different fun pieces arrived. 1970s, not as much jewellery was made. And therefore, the pieces that were made, they were scarce. Added to which gold becomes so expensive. So what did British people do, and probably all over the world? They smelted it. They took it along to the jewellers and say, oh, I need some money here. Can I trade in my jewellery and I'll get the money? And then what the dealers would do and the jewellers, they'd just take it off the bullion and smelt a lot. They A, they're scarce. B, there's, you know, not much was made. So again, it brings down that value becomes even more pronounced, I suppose. That's such a fabulous overview of the, the designs and the designers and the style. Thank you, Emma. I love it. I think that's very comprehensive. And you know what we did with you is that we gave you homework for this podcast. We asked Emma if she could read a book that was published last year called Modern British Jewelry Designers, 1960-1980. It's a collector's guide and it's by Mary Ann Wingfield and it was published by ACC Art Books. It's a beautiful book. It's like an introduction to the movement. It features 25 leading jewelry designers, one of them, of course, being Andrew Grimmer. And I think that's a great reference because it gives you such a nice overview of the movement. It covers a lot of the things that Emma just described in terms of styles and use of materials. The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast will be back after this break. 
The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Jewelry Auctions. Rappaport Jewelry Auctions offer centralized monthly auction markets that provide sellers with liquidity for their jewelry at fair market value prices and give buyers an opportunity to purchase estate jewelry at competitive market prices. Rappaport's auctions consist of unique estate, vintage, and signed jewelry, expertly curated and incredibly priced. With auctions held each month, there are always excellent buying and selling opportunities. Visit us at jewelryauctions.rappaport.com and register to participate in our upcoming auctions. So Emma, first, did you enjoy the book? Oh my goodness. I would say that this book is an integral part for any collector, really. Anyone who loves jewellery should read this book because I have myself learned so much. I think that's the great thing about the jewellery world. Every single day you learn something new. And this book has just brought to the forefront a heck of a lot of things I didn't know. (laughs) But I'm delighted I know now. And I have to say, Marianne Wingfield is very, very funny. So I think my favourite nugget of knowledge that I gleaned is the fact that Andrew Greemer's first foray was for his father-in-law, a chap called Franz Haller. Greemer went to join Franz Haller um, to work for him. So a lot of Greemer's early work, and this is really important if you're a collector, came under not the hallmark of AG Limited Greemer, which is what everyone would be looking for, and certainly I probably would have done the same, but was H.J. Co. And I love that. And that's what Marianne Winfield's done throughout this book. She has given and provided the maker's marks for all of the designers that she features in this book. And again, going back to the beginning of this book, what she wanted to do is, I suppose, every single artist, jeweler, they all had won incredible accolades, you know, competitions and all of these wonderful things. And so if I go back, I suppose, to who I knew, I knew about 14. And then there was another lot that I had never heard of, such as, and I'm going to say her name, Rod, Gerda Flockinger. And she's magnificent and one of the only females really to be discussed because the jewelry world's a male-centric world, a bit like banking. <laughs> and now it's changing. More women are coming to the forefront. Um, but anyway, Gerda Flockinger did some fabulous fusions of metals and she fused gold and silver together and kind of put pearls on pieces. Um, the more I kind of started reading about her, the more fascinating she became. Um, and I think this is what... Uh, Marianne Winfield has done throughout this book. She has got these nuggets of information, these fantastic little tidbits of knowledge that no one else would know. And because she's such an ardent collector that she knew about it. And a lot of these things were her personal kind of meetings with these designers. And what another great fact that I didn't know was that I knew of Roy King, but not of Roger King, his son. And in 1962, Roger King went on to win the Jewel of the Year competition for a brooch of diamonds and gold. And the work he has produced is absolutely sensational. However, he was hugely entrepreneurial. And by 1964, he thought, you know, I've had it with the jewellery world. I've won all these competitions. I'm actually going to go and set up family business. And he went on to build a multi-million pound healthcare management system. think about is that everyone and actually Mary Ann Wingfield said you know no I bet all the other designers are delighted that he was out of the running now for the next kind of upcoming competitions so he was very interesting and one of the guys came back to some of the people I didn't know Louis Osman I had no idea about this incredible designer but then at the same time I'd seen the crown that he made for Prince Charles for his investiture but I hadn't actually married the two together which I thought was just so fascinating then one of my favourite designers goes without saying is Kaczynski I absolutely love Kaczynski I'm very lucky I have a couple of his pieces 
Grima, I would love, but can I tell you, I went to the most amazing Bonhams auction a couple of years ago. There were some lips and there were some wonderful rings with watermelon tourmalines and just some fabulous, there was a, um, it looked like, you know, but it had been cut, it was like a, you know, when you sharpen a pencil, that kind of shaving, but it had been encased in gold and diamonds. It was just beautiful. Anyway, the um, the original kind of guide price at auction at Bonhams was about 500 to 1,000 pounds and 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. You know, I think I put the ceiling price was 1,500 I put on about five pieces. Anyway, each of those five pieces went on to fetch well over £100,000. So this is, if you can get any of these pieces, it's a great place to start. But going back to the book with Marianne Wingfield, she talks about a chat under the Kaczynski entry, and I didn't know this, called James Miller. And James Miller was commissioned to design something called the Flax Flower Egg. And I'd love to delve a bit more into his work because I think his work, again, for the collector would be very interesting to see if he had any signed pieces that he did without, say, the name of Kaczynski. And again, it would be a very interesting kind of addition to anyone's jewellery box, I'd say. Sonia, what would you say, who are your favourites out of these amazing people that Mary Ann Winfield holds up? So obviously Grima always comes up. Just the pieces are beautiful. The gemstones are gorgeous. I liked a few John Donald as well. And I just love the fact that they all played with the organic shapes. And the gold is so well treated and so beautifully carved. It's just such a piece of art. Each piece you look at it and you think it's so vibrant. I think that it's a great book and really uh, recommend it to our audience who wants to learn more. So Emma, we know that in your dream jewelry box, there's definitely Andrew Grima. Who else from this period would you like? Gosh, I would definitely have some Grima. I would definitely have more Kaczynski if I could get Elizabeth Gage. Oh, I can't believe I didn't even mention her. Marianne Wingfield talks about Elizabeth Gage. I love her work. I mean, she again used numismatic jewellery. She Her pieces were bold. They were fabulous. So I'd love some of her pieces. Oh, yes. Uh, John Donald, Andrew Gard, and then going back to David Deacon, his work is really interesting. And then a Greek designer who I absolutely love is Ilias Lalalunas. And the Lalalunas work, I think just... <laughs> Sonia's actually wearing a bracelet. I might actually have to come over and just borrow it. <laughs> um, but basically, and I would say any big boulders of absolute bling, and then I'd need quite a few jewellery boxes. It's not just one jewellery box I'm after. I want a lot. <laughs> we love greedy collectors. <laughs> I was such a greedy collector. I just, one day, one day... <laughs> Emma, that was such a wonderful deep dive into the 60s and the 70s of British jewellery. It was fantastic. And I love the fact that you shared so much of the knowledge of also dealing with the pieces, the technical side of it, not just the collecting side and falling in love, but actually what it takes to bring back these pieces to life and make them so exciting. So we need more women like you. <laughs> oh, well, Sonia, I cannot thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's been an absolute honour. So I'm really, really touched. And more to the point, thank you for opening my eyes even further by telling me to read this book. It's like, my goodness, this is brilliant. And going back saying everyone should get it. It is a fabulous book. I have a notebook that I use all the time and I've been annotating these notes and there seems to be far too many notes now. <laughs> so now I have to commit it all to memory. But you shared so much with us today. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for having joined us on this latest episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google and YouTube. If you like this podcast, give us your feedback and make sure that you subscribe so you won't miss any single episode. You also can find information on estate and antique jewelry on jewelryconnoisseur.net. 